Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Christopher Harris, Chris to his loyal listeners, will not stay in his lane. This is a guy who for years worked for ESPN as a writer and personality. And when he went solo, was brave enough to start his own podcast about fantasy football. And that has proven to be the little podcast that could. He has hundreds of thousands of listeners who depend on him for their fantasy football information. But he's much more than that. He writes novels. For the last decade, he's been consistently writing novels that refuse to be pigeonholed. Um, His subject matter is widely varied, but his writing is consistent. He's a really smart, funny, thoughtful, quick-witted guy. He has an analytical mind, but he's also got one of those wildly creative personalities that jumps around. He's fun to listen to if you like fantasy football and he's great to read. And it turns out he's an excellent guest for a conversation such as the one we had in the living room of his apartment in Los Angeles. Though listeners to his podcast will be disappointed to find out that that is not aboard a yacht It's actually many floors up in a high-rise in downtown Los Angeles. But Chris Harris is a good dude. He's everything you'd hope for. He's funny. He's smart. He's present. He thinks a lot about what he's doing. And he works really hard. And if you've listened to me and these conversations that comprise now over a half a year's worth of this show wheels off, you know that I value work ethic perhaps above all else. The one thing that I like even more than that is authenticity. And not in the stupid like, um, 
every country singer has to grow up on a farm since. But just somebody that really is trying to give you something honest every time they create something. And I think Chris Harris does that. And I'm so glad I got to speak to him for Wheels Off. Please welcome Christopher Harris. Chris Harris, welcome to Wheels Off. Thank you. Thanks for being my guest. We're here today in your, uh, what we affectionately, your listeners of your podcast called The Yacht, but we're here in your apartment in Los Angeles. And Are you for... really going to ruin this? Are you going to ruin the, the, the myth that I actually live aboard a yacht? <laughs> we're here in your actual yacht <laughs> right now in downtown Los Angeles, and um, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me on. It's really, really flattering. Um, what creative project are you working on right now and how is it inspiring you? So I'm working on a new novel. It'll be, if I finish, it'll be my fifth finished book that I hope will be a fifth published book. Uh, it's about a 30 year old man who quits the internet, who moves to a resort town to become a bartender and meets a couple of people who've also given up the capitalist life in some way and have moved to do service industry jobs. Did you ever read um, Generation X, Douglas Copeland? Copeland. Um, I don't think I did. So it's sort of a... I really liked that book. Uh When I was a kid, I really liked that book. And so um, it's kind of a conscious update in a way. That book was about three people who quit capitalism and go live in Palm Springs. Yeah. And I have them going to Tahoe. So big difference. (laughs) So it's not, you know, I mean, I'm very consciously um, using the same kind of dynamic, but with Generation X, whenever that was, 1989 or something, there was, there was no internet. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Did, did you go back and reread Generation X uh, to sort of feel the structure of it? I did. And mostly I want to make sure that I'm respecting another really good author's work and not just rewriting it. You know, I'm... I wrote uh, this novel called Tulsa, which is my most recent one that came out, and I reread The Road, Cormac McCarthy, in order to, like, I love that book, but also I wanted to make sure I didn't rewrite The Road, because that that book already exists, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, I could see similarities in those. And in fact, in Tulsa, I have somebody reading out loud from The Road, just so that everybody can go, yes, I'm aware, I'm aware this book exists. (laughs) I'm aware, and yeah, and so for this new one, I'm aware Generation X exists. I'm, you know, but it is sort of the millennial version, I guess, in a way. But I'm trying to kind of, it's it's the same but different in a way that I hope Tulsa is also the same but different. Yeah, it's it's funny how often that comes up, but and I think that there must be so much truth to it. Like the way we learn to do something is by mimicking the thing that we sure. love. Yeah. Right. And uh, and I mean, so often I interviewed Michael Shabon the other day, and he was talking about. His first things he ever did were basically Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. So it's funny how, I mean, I think of the first songs I wrote, and they were kind of like the musical version of fan fiction to Bowie or whatever. Yeah. But um, that's so funny. And the the different novels that you write tend to be very different. You know, you're in the, the world of indie rock. Uh, you're in the world of post-apocalypse. You're in the, you know, and then and the, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, do you think that there's a, a like a single question that kind of runs between them that you're sort of trying to answer? 
like something you're grappling with yourself as an author as you create these different worlds, disparate well, worlds? That's really for the biographers to decide. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, there's one about an NFL player who's too small to play but yeah. wants to anyway. There's one about a guy who's been traumatized at war and comes back to Austin and becomes a, like a private detective, like a gumshoe, but isn't very good at it. Um, I feel like maybe the project is uh, connection, loneliness. Um, for sure, that's what's on my mind with this one, what the internet does to us, this thing that's supposed to connect us that somehow weirdly winds up fragment, fragmenting us more. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't say that I, I sit down every time I'm going to write a book and say, golly, I wonder how I can express my loneliness differently this time. Yeah, of course. It just seems to be maybe the thing that comes out. And I mean, I know your music pretty well, and that's something that comes out for you a lot, too. Yeah, but I never know what the songs are about till, till later, right? Yeah. It's, I, I wonder if... and. Do you think that if you sit down and you're like, and like you, you're calculating, how am I gonna, you know, explicate loneliness for my reader? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like this is it's something that you have to make be unconscious as you're yeah. writing, right? Yeah, I'm certainly not thinking that at all. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm certainly, mo- and then and then the double question on top of that becomes. Are, who are you in these books? Are you this Scott from War on Sound? Are you the unnamed narrator from Tulsa? Are you the football player from... And I feel like when I'm writing them, I'm almost never that person. It's it's always... Um, I'm, I don't, I'm not very interesting, right? And and yet you are... You're only putting in what you know. And writers are pretty solitary people anyway. And I probably in some way, everybody's somewhat solitary without realizing how common that is. And... And so the concerns of these characters who don't feel like they're actually me kind of wind up being my concerns. Yeah, isn't that... Well, I, it, I'll probably want to ask you at some point about um, the, the, the uh, feelings of inadequacy or fear or the sort of internally generated obstacles. That's something I really am kind of obsessed with, how artists deal with that. But I wonder, just even that question of um, how autobiographical is this? Who are you in this? Um, that question of when the reader uh, looks at it and then uh, contemplates how much of you is in it, do, do you ever feel paralyzed by that? Is that something that is a hang-up for you? Not really. Um, you seem to have been very, very prolific. I don't, I yeah, don't see you getting too I, hung up. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the winters, as you know, my day job is covering the NFL, so... Uh, yeah, it, in the winters, I have a lot of free time, so I just write. Um, I don't feel like I get worried about uh, whether people are going to interpret that I'm a character or not a character. I rarely set out and go... So the answer is, I'm Scott from War on Sound. Uh-huh. Like if there's ever been a dude who's been me as... I'm not a musician, right? And yeah. he's, I guess, pretty talented in the world of that book. But... His outlook, his feelings about himself, that pretty blatantly, people who know my backstory of my life, my family read that, and and my parents recognized his parents as them. Uh, like, that is as close as I'll ever get. I don't think I would want to do it again. And that, that I probably had some anxiety over. I think the rest of it, if, you know, the 
clearly the main character in Slapback Rhapsody, not me. Yeah. Uh, clearly the main character in Tulsa, not me. But you're, you know, so I don't worry if I put in a feeling or something that I've expressed to somebody or some detail from my life that's really one piece that's like from my life, but the rest isn't. I don't get too worried about that. Um, so you mentioned that your day job is covering the NFL and, yeah. uh, and thinking of it in terms of the fantasy football uh, angle. But um, when you were growing up, you didn't think of be- becoming a fantasy football expert. You, <laughs> you dreamt of becoming a novelist, I would guess, first. I sure right? did, yeah. Did you have like an epiphany moment? I mean, I know you studied for a lot of years, but at the very beginning of it, like how old were you when you realized you wanted to do this? And what do you remember about that moment? This is crazy that we're doing this today because so I'm writing this new novel uh-huh. and... Uh, I have a character. So the the new novel is a first person present tense. The guy goes to Tahoe and he decides to write what it's like to leave the internet. And so he is telling the story like quote unquote in real time. And I'm just today, this morning, before we started talking, writing about his epiphany moments of becoming a fiction writer. So they're very fresh in my mind. That's crazy. Um, I mean, I was a reader from really young, and my mom. Uh, worked for like a regional uh, book chain that no longer exists because there's I don't think there are regional book chains anymore. <laughs> um, and would bring we we got uh, she brought home tons of books, but also we we would get uh, paperback proof copies of forthcoming novels delivered almost every day to the house because publishers at the time would send them. There was only print books. That was all there was in the world. And they would send them to try to convince the buyers to stock the book. So we had so many books. And I read so much stuff. And, man, I'm, there was something about that. There was something about the reading that made me want to do it. The, fir- I, the first thing I remember writing, and this is in the new novel, so I'm scooping myself. <laughs> uh, I have a younger sister by two years. I must have been 12, 13 or something. I wrote... Uh, what would now be called a podcast series <laughs> of uh, it was called Exiles from the P- Planet Ruminoff. Uh, I believe it was basically Battlestar Galactica, but <laughs> I just decided to. So it was like uh, somebody's planet was destroyed, and there was like a ragtag group of people who got away, and they were out there searching for a new home. But I, you know, I'd stolen it obviously, but didn't realize. There's a long history of thievery in my, <laughs> in my em- emulation, inspiration, yeah, emulation. Um, and I would read it out loud to my sister and her friends. That's so cool. Uh, and so, yeah, I was a podcaster even back then. And and I think I never got to the end because the school year started again, but I'm sure I wrote a ton of it. I'm sure I did. I'm sure there were, I mean, dozens of pages anyway. How old do you think you were? I think probably 12. That's so cool. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I mean, from I just liked the way I felt when I did it. But It's funny that you... You did it as kind of a gift for your sister. I mean, it was there was this, probably a selfishness to it because it was so much fun and it was you were driven to do it. But I always think of art in terms of being a gift. Do you, do you feel like it was something that she thought was super cool and she loved it? And, and for you, was it cool to be able to like kind of give her this thrill? Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't think I... I think I did it. And then I... Like for myself. And then I probably said, hey, I did this thing and was surprised that she wanted me to hear it out loud. And then she really liked it. So then I was like, I'll do more. And then I remember she and a friend of hers um, saying, hey, have you done more? Have you done more? And I'd be like, oh, let me go do do some more. 
So it was, it was she was my first patron. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of was that that thing of uh, of positive feedback loop, probably leading I, to I, good feelings. I wonder about that too, just because the the audience aspect of what we do, and and so many writers that I know specifically um, tend to be very. Um, phobic about interacting with their audience or reading what people say about it or mm. I mean you by virtue of your other job you have so much interaction with your audience and and there and it's such a it's such a large audience and vocal and like I just wonder to what extent I mean clearly you're not phobic about input and I get the feeling even with your novels that you like to hear from people and you like do you when you're writing is it something you're super aware of like I don't think when I'm writing I'm thinking about it at all. I, I know I'm not. That's great. I'm, yeah, I'm not thinking yeah. about it at all. Uh, but so Tulsa, this most recent one, like I didn't expect it. It did really well. Like I think I've sold more copies of that book in six months than I've sold of all my other books put together over their whole lives. Some of which are like eight or nine years. Yeah. Um, and that's because I, there's this thing called the apocalypse that's really popular. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that I've just, you know, got, people were like, oh, let's read about the apocalypse. And and Tulsa has a little bit of, it's a little bit of a bait and switch in mm-hmm. that it's about the apocalypse, but in the end you finish it and you're like, was it really about the, was it about this guy? What, you know. And so I've gotten more, there were probably four months or so right after it came out where every single day I'd get at least an email, a tweet, something about the book. Somebody saying they're in the middle of it and really liking it. Uh, somebody saying they were confused by something, somebody who isn't, is more of a fan of my football work but sort of wanted to just d- dive in and felt like, am I missing something? And then inevitably the, like, the way the book ends is a particular ending that I don't want to say, but uh, it isn't all completely resolved. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. And uh, so a lot of that, a lot of like, did, am I missing something or why did you do this? Or I like that you did this, but could you explain it in a way that I've never had for fiction before? Oh, wow. Never. But you don't explain it to them, right? You tell them that if they want to follow the clues, they can make up their own mind. I'm sure. assuming. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I certainly don't, I can, I, I, it depends on how the person asks, to be honest. Okay. If, if the person asks super sweetly and they say, <laughs> you know, what was your intent and it really means a lot to me and I really liked it and all that stuff. I, I might kind of say, well, think about what comes second to last. Think about what comes last. Yeah, That should be some level of, of a breadcrumbs about what happens and then also why it ends that way, that it's much more about this guy and him in the worst possible circumstances actually becoming himself much more than he ever was when the power was on. Yeah. Um, and then with people who, who are more like... Screw you! <laughs> you know this really, this really hurt. You know this this sucks that you didn't tell me what happened. Is there a sequel coming? Uh, um, m- most most of those people, I go, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it makes sense that you would write a book about wanting to get away from the internet after <laughs> all of it. Do you, now you did a lot of s- schooling. I mean, mm-hmm. you did um, UMass uh, masters at UMass MFA. MFA, yeah. Is that the same thing as a master? I don't understand school. Yeah. So it was a master of fine arts. <laughs> yes. At UMass. Um, they call it a terminal degree. Oh, geez. For a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel like that was crucial to your abilities? I mean, was it, is it something you really look back on as being a great experience and it helped you a lot? It did help. I mean, I went, I, there were, 
I went to business school mm-hmm. at University of Texas right out of, so I went, went to undergrad, had one year out, then went to University of Texas for business school. I was the youngest in the program. There weren't a lot of straight through type people in business school at the time. And then I went, and then I went and worked for a while, and then 30-ish is when I went back to MFA at, at UMass. And that, that was an experience of now I'm older than 75% of the people. And honestly, if I had done it vice versa, if I'd done the MFA right away, I don't think I'd have gotten anything out of it. I needed to grow up. And for me, an MFA program was time to write. Yeah. And that's a three-year program, not a two-year program. They so you haven't really used it. I, and I think if I'd been 23, I just would have goofed off because I kind of goofed off in business school. I mean, yeah. It wasn't that hard. <laughs> um, and so, while, like, I remember very clearly, you've done, you were a creative writing guy, so you've done workshops where... A little bit. Yeah. I, but I dropped out really quickly at college and then, and then regretted it ever since. But, but like, the workshop experience is, uh, for people who don't know, you bring in a story, a, copy of every, a paper copy for everybody... It's a once a week class, right? So they go away, they come back the next week, and they presumably have read it and marked it up and they eviscerate you. You know, they basically say what's good, what's bad. It's a very. People who've gone through workshops and MFA programs, some hate it and just hate it, period. And some recognize the utility but never want to do it again. And I think that I'm sort of more in the second camp. But my experience of workshops was always they'd do a schedule at the beginning of the semester and. Uh, you'd sign up for September 23rd or whatever and then that guy over there signed up for October 5th and that guy over there signed up for October 12th but every workshop I ever did we'd get to the person on October 12th and they'd be like oh I don't really have anything to show I, yeah I, I don't really have anything what? and I'd be like well I've got something I'm <laughs> writing so I'd get to go like three times in a semester nice. because I was there to write you know and, and those guys and gals tended to be there to do other things or put off life or whatever. So I think it was useful in that I just got so many more pages on my odometer. Yeah. Um, and probably not all that, probably not that great, you know, but um, I used the dime. You have such a um, different, probably, setup in terms of schedule than most people in that you are working on writing your fiction starting, I'm guessing, January. Right. And, and you go probably up until late summer. And then, um, how weird is that to step away from it? Is it does it uh, is it in the back of your brain throughout the football season while you're doing all the other stuff, or do you really completely step away from it? It's f- so uh, Tulsa. Um, I actually had to work on during the 2017 season. The publisher said, "All right, here's some edits. Here's some ideas. Here's some thoughts. I'm not clear on what this means. That kind of stuff." So that was that's been the only book since I've left. I was at ESPN for eight years, mm-hmm. uh, also leading a double life, writing fiction, etc. Um, but that's the first time, the first season where I actually had to work on both, and I don't recommend it because the football season for me, I'm doing five podcasts a week. Mm-hmm. It's quite all-consuming, and uh, I prefer, you know, given that that's how I can afford a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I kind of, that's, I like it. I li- it's, it's cool to have like a dichotomy. There's this thing that um, expresses deeper truths that as I understand them. And then this other thing that's... Wait, deeper than the NFL? <laughs> it's hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and, 
And then this other thing that the NFL and and kind of the communion that we have over the NFL. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care that it's the. I like football fine. I much more care about the communion that we have have over it. Yeah, it's an excuse. I'm. It's an excuse to stay in touch with friends. It's an excuse to rag on our family. Mm-hmm. My show, my podcast, is just is is a lot of football, but it's also a lot of meta commentary on what an idiot I am and idiot the guests are and whatever. Like, it, I never would have believed. I mean, you've heard the songs on my show. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So for the listeners, fans will write in and they'll make these mixtapes for Chris about things that typically they'll use like funny, you know, the, the possum or whatever, right. just stuff Stupid that stuff that we've yeah, said on in the show. jokes that come up on the show. Right. So it it is a wondrous audience. I'm like seriously moved to tears sometimes thinking about that audience, and that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. Um, I've found this this crazy group of sensitive people who are just into. The way we talk about, and I honestly don't think the football mat it matters. Yeah. We all care. We're all trying to win our fantasy leagues and have our NFL teams yeah. win. And blah, yeah. but honestly, I think at base, it's that communion. What we talk about when we talk about love or yeah. whatever. It's, yeah, it's a it's a thing that we get. What's well, I told you beforehand that um, the reason I do it anymore is because it's a way that my son and I can have a, just a thing that connects us. Yeah. And some of my bandmates, originally I started doing it because you're in the back of a van. And you're like, I don't want to talk about the next gig or how crappy the last gig was. Let's talk about whatever. Odell um, Beckham getting traded. Ricky Williams yeah. back Ricky, in the day. Yeah, Ricky Williams. <laughs> but so anyway, the one time that I had to really yeah. do fiction at the same time, Oof. I don't know. Time-wise, it was brutal, obviously. Yeah. But honestly, there's there's like a piece of me that does get turned off a little bit. In the during the season, where I'm really more focused on the communal thing with these people, I've I've gotten so addicted to this audience. Yeah, and it's a weird feeling, man. It's strange, but I love having that contact with them. And then by December, I'm so ready to not have it for a little while. It's yeah. like it's this big megaphone that I feel like is. I mean, you you would understand this is more than I would. So I'm on a on a lesser level. Uh, it's this big megaphone that you know Twitter and and social media in general, but also just emails. I get so many emails of people yeah. who like the show and who have questions about what, who they should start and all this stuff that I really love it. I love the I, I love that I found and these people have found me that there's that there's connection and then I'm ready for it to be gone and I'm ready to go away and crawl into a hole and write a book or do something else and be much more private. That's funny. So the, the well, these conversations I have are, are about creativity. And um, it's obvious, you know, with the five novels you've already released and what you're working on now, that's, I mean, the, that's an obvious subject to talk about on a show like this. But I do think even though what you do with the Harris football thing, um, I, I recently interviewed Brian Anderson, who's a sportscaster. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know him. Yeah, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. And, and the things he had to say blew my mind about just the, the work you put into it. And I think, I guess what I'm, why I'm saying this is part of what you do, I feel like, is you're contextualizing sort of random information and bits and pieces, and you're taking it and you're building a narrative for people. Mm. You're finding a way for people to make sense out of it. So there, I do think there is something really creative about what you do with the Harris Football Podcast. And um, But what it makes sense, right? Because the off-season, you're fucking writing novels. So <laughs> why wouldn't you be doing something that's inherently creative? I mean, do you, do you when, you're, when you're gearing up to record a podcast, when you're getting ready... Are you thinking a lot? Are you thinking like a writer? Do you think? Do you ever? Clearly, you're going to write stuff down. Yeah. But do you do you script out? Is it does it feel creative? 
It feels like a freight train that I'm trying to keep one hand on that I'm that I'm really like barely managing every day. Honestly, that's what it feels like most more than anything. But yes, I was telling you before, the reason it takes five hours to make one of these football shows is is you know, it only takes about an hour to record it. It's all this prep and figuring out, okay, what's the best way to say this? That would be funny. This kind of dot 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 dots back to something I've said previously. In some way, it is that kind of nonlinear thinking that you have to apply to something linear, which which is what fiction writing is. Yeah. You know, you can't really write a resonant novel that just goes, well, and then this happened, and then that happened, <laughs> yeah. and then this happened, because I guess you can, but you have to be really lucky, because in the end, you had to have had kind of a direction that thematically made some sense, and maybe that muscle gets kept in shape during the football season by what I have to do for the for the football podcast, because... I, I am really I'm I'm trying to think of the I think of it for sure as like a I mean I produce the show myself it's me sitting in front of audacity with an hour's worth of yeah. space to fill what comes next and then next and then next and next and again if you're only just figuring that out you're not relating it back to all the other shows you've done all the vernacular that you've figured out what you've thought in the past yeah I mean it's funny for a show that claims to rage against narratives as much as I claim to rage against narratives. <laughs> I sure do create a lot of narratives. You spin a lot yeah, of webs. I do. That's so. So we we talked um, beforehand when we were having lunch. We were talking about the idea of writing a novel and keeping this giant thing in your head, just okay. kind of trying to keep track of something that's so big. But it's funny as you describe this and the show, it feels like that too. There's just there's a lot that you're a lot of balls in the air. Do you find? Um, I I like to talk to our creative people about. Um, internally generated obstacles, you know, which fear, imposter syndrome, mm. um, you know, like the, the, the negative voices that I, I know for me have always been sort of a part of the what's going on inside my head at all times. How, how do you deal with that and how much is that a part of, you know, what, what your everyday creative life is like? I'm, I try to be as much of a creature of habit as possible in the writing. And I think that's a big way to get away from, I mean, down to the point where I'll, if I have a good day, I got to go back to that same spot and drink the same thing, listen to the same music if I'm in like a public space. What do you listen to? Just out of curiosity. I mean, it's going to sound stupid, but I, today I listened to your record. <laughs> <laughs> to what I was writing this morning. I you can to listen record. to music with lyrics while you yeah, write. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not when I edit. When I edit, it has to be quiet. But when I'm writing, I actually can yeah. um, and prefer to. But a uh, present company accepted. <laughs> but I really was, and I really do love the record. Uh, uh, new pornographers a lot. Yeah. Uh, Spoon a lot. Yeah, I got that from yeah. Long Sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, and I'll, and I'll if I have a new pornographers day that's good, then damn, they're getting shuffled again, right? And I think part of it is to, I like it's. I think of it as almost not being that healthy in some ways to try to create the exact same environment over and over again. It's a level of, of compulsion. It, it's a little OCD and it's a little um, not accepting of life in some way. Life is change. and Do you think you're a control freak? This is the therapy part, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um about some things definitely and about other things so clearly not that yeah, yeah. like people who know me would go oh no not yeah. <laughs> not in this way not in that way but in in the environment of writing or in or uh, 
I, like promptness and stuff like that. I think, yeah, I think about some things, yes. Yeah. Um, but but like, there are some things that I give so little thought to that people go, yeah, control. He's not in control. It's funny you talk. I mean, you talked about loneliness. Mm. You joke about loneliness. Mm. Um, and I wonder if you think that's something that helps feed your art or if that's something that you sort of have to grapple with to get through the days and keep making art. I mean, both. Yeah. So much so, yeah. I mean, it's tough. I I have been in lots of relationships but never have been married mm-hmm. and feels like maybe that time is sort of slipping by, but I don't know. And I'm doing online dating now. Yeah, that's the thing. I have so many friends that tell me. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I've done it in the past, and I've met people that way, but I've sort of back on it again and um, hate hate it so much. And it makes me feel bad about myself. Essentially, I mean, that's the problem. With, the problem with me, my interaction with the world is I I am I have a mania to find things that make things make me feel bad about myself. Oh. It would be a lot easier to not write books. It would be a lot easier to not worry about acceptance of art. It would be a lot easier to just... I have like a kind of a great gig going on with this great audience that likes what I do. And hey, just do that, dude. You know, like do the thing that makes you feel good. And yet I have a compulsion toward... Yeah. Well, what if no one ever did the thing that scared them or made them feel vulnerable? Yeah. We, what, what kind of world would we live in? We wouldn't have the art. I'm glad you do it. I'm yeah, grateful. I mean, it's thank, thank you. I mean, I'm, it's true, but it, but that's why it's both fuel and impediment, right? Because yeah. it, I mean, I'll I, I, we were talking about insomnia, right? And I'll I, if once I'm up, once I wake up once, I'm up, man, and then the thoughts start running and. And all those thoughts, the, the 5 a.m. thoughts are almost never going to help you. Yeah. The 5 a.m. thoughts are always the one that are going, okay, well, so death is when? And yeah. therefore I have this much time until then? And, you know, it's funny and yet it's totally, especially oh. when you're, in, with the benefit of talking here in the early afternoon, yeah. it seems quite quaint. But I know you've been there. I listen to your music. Yeah. At 5 a.m. it's not fun. Yeah. And it is 100% like, yeah, it's. Those are the times where I go, let's see if we can make today exactly like it was yesterday when I wrote, because then that does feel like a little cage that, at least for as long as you're in it, you're in control. You get to decide what happens. I think it's why we like sports. Mm-hmm. It's why we like most of the things that we like. It's why we like fashion. It's why we like uh, movies. It's all this kind of, we get to kind of siphon off this little world. And... uh feel like, okay, the chaos doesn't get in as much for these moments that I'm thinking about this stuff. What do you see? You, one of your lyrics, moments of transcendence in this last... Yeah, yeah. thanks. The human condition. Yeah. Um, it's funny, every night when I sing that, or every, whenever I sing that, um, I, I feel, because it, this speaks to what we're talking about, I feel like, oh, is this too much? Is this lyric too much? Is it too... I feel really vulnerable. Like, I'm yeah. like... Because like, I'm walking... That lyric walks right up to the line of like, Okay, am I being heavy-handed? You know, but but it feels true. I mean, I, we so again, I'm re, we had a lovely conversation before yeah. we started. So I'm repeating to you, but the people didn't hear it. Um, I those there's there's like three songs back to back to back on the new record that are wincingly true and painful and and I said to you, I don't really know how you do that with. Without having, without pushing me away, those songs are pulling me in with painful truths that are so universal that they could be a cliche. Mm-hmm. But you're just finding the right way to say it in a way that I need 300 pages to say. Uh, 
right? And you're doing it in just a, a, a few lines of lyric poetry, and that's hard to do, man. That's really good. Thank you. But I think that's something that comes through in your novels and even in the podcast. I think that you are willing to go there in a lot of ways. You're willing to be human. You're willing to show your you know foibles and your um, insecurities even. And I mean, I think that's great. How can you... Thanks. That's the only thing... That's what makes art, right? Yeah. All we're trying to do is grapple with what it means to be a human being. It's true. I mean, I, I'm... So I did this uh, podcast called The Juggernaut. Mm-hmm. I told you about that. Yeah. And uh, I, we didn't know each other then, or I would have had you as a guest. Yeah. I would have been thrilled. Um, but I, we did probably 50 episodes or something. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it started me talking to some of the musicians that I talked to. Like, uh, do you know Ross Flournoy from Apex Manor? He's in L.A. Uh, no. um, great guy. I should introduce you guys. He's wonderful. Uh, I think he's on Merge. Oh, cool. Um, has a record coming out soon. Everybody should listen to Ross, yeah. Apex Manor. Um, so I had, I had did inter- the first several interviews of that show were me basically talking to musicians who had been nice to me when I was doing War on Sound. Mm-hmm. And then I, had a, I have a producer, Dave who, Piper, who's still my producer. And he started looking for guests that I didn't know personally, just who had produced stuff that I thought was awesome. We wound up getting great guests. I mean, it wound up being really cool. It sort of ran its course. But during that run of engagement is when the Las Vegas shooting happened. Mm. And it happened the morning or the night before the morning I had to do an introduction for one of those podcasts mm. where I was introducing an interview that had already, that took place. We did the interview before the shooting. And I mean, I was crying doing, doing the intro. Like yeah. I'm almost crying now. Yeah. It was, I had to stop. It was not usable. It was ridiculous, yeah. right? Because that doesn't help. Yeah. So I just did it again. I tried it again, and I think I must have done it three different times, yeah. and just tried tried to get through it, um, and never had never had as many. I mean, not that many people listen to that show, but I never had as many people write in and say, "I'm so glad you left that in." Yeah. Whether I agree with you politically, whether I agree with you know, like all the stuff that kind of stems from trauma, maybe we could disagree, but to hear somebody having a hard time getting through it made me feel more connected and that's all you could ever want from any art exactly that's the whole reason we're here so if you this is how i wrap up each show um and i think you've given so much useful advice up to this point but i'm going to ask you to distill it a little bit if you were to meet a 20 year old version of chris harris but today 20 years old in 2019 right um what advice would you give yourself Porn. <laughs> Get more of it or less of it. <laughs> go into it. Go in the industry. It seems like it's where everything's going. Um, what would I say? I mean, here's the thing. I never really, ha- still to this day, have really fully 100% committed to fiction writing. I've always given myself an out. I wasn't an English major undergrad. Um, I went and got an MBA. I went and got real jobs for a while. Then I kind of re- realized I was on the wrong path and probably needed that the tw- my 20s to grow up some and realize what was important and and yet got to the point where now I was doing football stuff and now I was doing so I, I don't know if I would say to my 20 year old self believe that you could do it it's going to take a lot you're not ready to do it now even though you probably think you're a good enough writer to do it now but no really probably not many people are at 20 but I didn't I wish I had spent more time giving myself over to fiction writing, not because 
I think that especially now no one's going to be being a literary fiction writer not very many people make make a living so it's not so much a matter of finance but I think I just would have written more yeah and and I probably would have understood myself better and I probably just would have um, felt truer to myself in a way that now I feel truer to myself uh I didn't really feel all that true to myself back then doing business school stuff and then getting MBA type jobs and waking up at five in the morning and working on a novel that wasn't very good. And I mean, I did it for years and years, yeah. but if I'd been, I feel like that's the time, you know, early twenties, that would have been the time. And so I would probably give that advice. So, I mean, I, I do, I think there's a certain level of bravery that characterizes all the stuff that you've done, but, but sort of what you're saying is own it early, be, be brave. I mean, when else are you going to do it? Yeah. You know, when, when else other than when, you, when you're pretty darn young, is there really even time when you have the less responsibilities, when you don't have the financial overhead, you know? Um, but then the, the, it begs the question, like, do I wish I'd been an English major? I read plenty. I wrote plenty. Do I wish I hadn't gone to business school? Some of my very best friends in the world that I've now known for 20-some years that I met, if I hadn't, you know, they're, they're great. They're amazing. They're, like, some of my best readers, frankly. Yeah. Um, so I don't regret the actual course that I took, but I, let's take it out of advice for me to sure. myself. I think somebody who loves it, music, painting, writing, whatever, um, if you're young you know it's easy for me to say don't worry about money because yeah. everybody needs to worry about money um, and so much of this new book I'm writing about is about the gig economy yeah you know and how that becomes seductive and you're exhausted and you can't work and you don't have health insurance and yet all through that yeah I think be brave that's awesome well thank you so much for being so generous and cool and fun and I can't wait for next season but I can't wait for your next book more importantly thank you very much for having me it was fun thanks Chris All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.